Good evening. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the Cato Institute and also to welcome those viewing on C-SPAN. I'm Peter Gettler, president of Cato. Before we start, I want to tell you a little bit about, this is our first in the Joseph K. McLaughlin Lecture Series. And I'd like to tell you a little bit about Joseph K. McLaughlin. Dr. McLaughlin, or Joe, was a world-renowned cancer epidemiologist. He received his doctorate from the University of Minnesota in 1981. He worked for a number of years at the National Cancer Institute. And in 1994 was the co-founder of the International Epidemiology Institute, where he served as president. And he was also an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University. Joe was, uh, as I said, a world-renowned epidemiologist, cancer epidemiologist. He believed in the rigorous application of the scientific method. He was occasionally known to bemoan the state of his, uh, his field of science. Um, I think he had a strong ability, unlike some of his peers and unlike most of us, uh, who occasionally fall prey to the bias that um, correlation can be causality. I think uh, Joe had a special talent to be able to, uh, to resist that impulse. Although he was a scientist of the first rank, um, that's not the only reason why we're honoring Joe tonight. He was also a great friend of the Cato Institute, a generous sponsor of ours for over two decades. But he also had the uh, broad and accomplished intellect uh, to which so many of us aspire and, uh, and fail to reach. Joe had a library of thousands of volumes. Um, he had an incredibly wide range of academic interests ranging from economics to genetics to film noir. And uh, I was, have been told that Joe was interested in everything. And he was particularly interested in the correlation between geography and, uh, and achievement or civilization. Questions like, why is the Silicon Valley the center of technological innovation? Why did Hollywood become uh, the home to the film industry? Why was ancient Athens the epicenter of advanced thought at, at the time? Um, we are delighted to be able to honor Joe's memory. I only met him once. It was before I joined Cato. Joe and I both attended a lunch here where he was seated next to uh, an equally impressive intellect, uh, the psych Harvard psychologist and cognitive scientist Steven Pinker. Uh, and that was unfortunately just a few weeks before Joe's untimely passing. But we're delighted that through the generosity of Joe's wife, Jean Rosenthal, who's with us tonight, along with uh, their daughter, Allison, through Jean's generosity, this lecture series has been made possible. For those of For those of you who are not as familiar with the Cato Institute, we view our mission very broadly defined as a defense and advancement of the critical human and American values of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. And at times when those values feel under assault or when the political process is, let's say, dealing up choices that uh, we find unpalatable, um, we sometimes get discouraged. But I think it's very important not to get discouraged and to um, kind of open the aperture a little bit and recognize all of the things that freedom, human freedom, has given us. It's really given us the environment in which innovation can take place. And as a result, I often say, people who know me, this will be a bro I'll be a bit of a broken record. There's no better time to be alive as a human being than today because of the great uh, innovations that have made our life um, very interesting. Um, the leisure and recreation opportunities we enjoy here in the United States and in other countries, but most importantly, the great level of global prosperity that has increased as global, global poverty has decreased substantially. 
Um, and I think we do liberty a disservice when we don't fully appreciate or we take for granted all of these things. I think it's Walter Williams who told a story about uh, you know, the, how to appreciate the miracle of, of free enterprise in the markets. That when you have to go to the grocery store, you don't call them up and tell them they're coming, you're coming. You don't tell them what you want. But when you get there, the dozens and dozens of things you do want are there at high quality and at modest cost. Uh, and hundreds and hundreds of things that you don't want. So the choice is pretty incredible. And it's miracles like that that remind me of um, the person we're going to hear, hear from tonight. If I had told you 20 years ago, when you were first trundling onto what we then called the information superhighway on your dial-up modem, if I had told you at that point that there was going to be an encyclopedia available and it was going to be published in 295 different languages, you would actually stop me then and say I didn't even know there were 295 different languages. Um, but unlike that uh, stack of books on your shelf, it was going to be completely available online. The largest version, the English version, was going to have 5.2 million articles and I believe 3.2 billion words. And that you were going to be able to access, access this at will, free of charge, whenever you wanted to. <laughs> Through the generosity of donors to the Wikimedia Foundation, of which I think it's interesting to note Joe McLaughlin, the namesake of this lecture, was, was, one, was one of them. So thanks to the generosity of Joe and his fellow sponsors of the Wikimedia Foundation that allow me to go to Wikipedia time after time again uh, during the day. But uh, Wikipedia, as I believe you all know, um, you know, if I had told you that such a facility was going to exist, and I made that prediction, you would have thought I was crazy. You would have thought I was particularly insane or under the influence if I told you that this vast encyclopedia was going to be written without compensation by registered users, of which now there are almost 30 million. Um, we would have thought this just couldn't be possible. But it's the genius of uh, Friedrich Hayek, the namesake of this auditorium, that partially explains how uh, um, emergent orders like, like uh, Wikipedia can, can come to pass. And it was the genius of Jimmy Wales that uh, brought Wikipedia into existence. Uh, Jimmy was born in Alabama. He attended, a, until eighth grade, a one-room school that was run by his mother and grandmother which I believe was based on the Montessori approach. Uh, I suppose it wouldn't have to be this way, but it shouldn't surprise us that he uh, really enjoyed pouring through encyclopedias as a child. And um, he credits this kind of self-directed upbringing with being the source of his, of his creativity. He got a bachelor's degree at Auburn University and a master's at the University of Alabama which I imagine means that Iron Bowl Day must be very difficult for him. Uh, that's when Auburn plays the University of Alabama every year. Uh, or maybe it's easy because he doesn't care who wins. Uh, but he went to work as a researcher at a Chicago financial options uh, firm where he worked from 1994 to 2000. 2000, he left his job. He was becoming increasingly interested in the internet and started an internet company. Uh, which didn't succeed, but then founded uh, Wikipedia's forerunner, Newpedia. Actually, I, shouldn't, I don't think it's technically a forerunner, but uh, his first venture, his first attempt at an online um, encyclopedia. And then in 2001, launched Wikipedia. And uh, as the rest, as they say, is history which I will let him more aptly, uh, more aptly describe for us. So please join me. It's a real pleasure to welcome to Cato, Jimmy Wales. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> okay, wow, thank you very much. Um, it's really great to be here. Um, I actually did visit the Cato Institute about 150 years ago, I think it was. Uh, I'm, I'm joking, of course, it was maybe 20 years ago, something like that. My, uh, 
uh, I had a girlfriend at the time who was an intern here, and I actually popped by one day, so that was kind of fun. So I'm going to talk today uh, about uh, this topic, Wikipedia and reasoned discourse, um, because for me this is one of the most uh, uh, this is one of the most important features of Wikipedia, which is uh, something that is sorely lacking um, in the world today. And one of the reasons for the popularity of Wikipedia is that it is a place people can turn for this. So going back to the beginning, um, here's the original vision statement for Wikipedia, and that's for all of us to imagine a world in which every single person on the planet is given free access to the sum of all human knowledge. Uh, and that's what we're doing at Wikipedia. I think one of the reasons that Wikipedia has been so successful um, is that uh, we've managed to gather this incredible uh, group of volunteers, people who are very passionate about Wikipedia, about getting it right, about sharing knowledge. And one of the reasons that they are so passionate is that we have a really big vision. I think if I had started with a smaller vision saying, oh, let's, let's all get together and write uh, an entry for every US president, people would have said, well, what was the point of that? But this is really grand. Um, every single person on the planet, free access to the sum of all human knowledge. So since 2001, uh, this community has created more than uh, 40 million entries. Uh, we have monthly over 400 million unique visitors. Um, this is a really uh, a pretty staggering number uh, to, to get your head around. Um, actually, our internal server logs suggest an even higher traffic number. This is the sort of official numbers from Comscore. Uh, but we know Comscore is very, very good at measuring traffic uh, in the US and Europe, but basically in the developed world. Their model of their business is to measure traffic for advertising. Uh, even they admit they're, they're not as good at measuring in the developing world. They're not as good at measuring uh, mobile traffic and so on. They're improving all the time. Uh, but we believe that this number is probably a little bit low, but still, it's a big enough number, so we're happy with that. Uh, and Wikipedia is in 284 languages. Now, uh, I, I always think this number is a little bit unfair. Um, I, I don't actually claim 284 languages because um, a fair number of the languages of Wikipedia are very, very small. So there's 284 websites set up that have um, a very tiny community working. They've often translated the interface and so on. But if we really want to get an idea of the scope of Wikipedia, the scale of Wikipedia, uh, some of the key statistics. We have 10 languages with over 1 million entries. Um, I'm excluding two languages here that have over 1 million entries that are primarily written by bots, which is a whole other topic we could talk about. Um, but in terms of human written, uh, primarily human written languages, there are 10 languages with over 1 million. 48 languages have at least 100,000, 128 have at least 10,000, and 234 have at least 1,000. So 1,000 entries um, is quite small. It's not a very uh, useful or functional encyclopedia yet, but that's a number that I always look at because once there's 1,000 entries, then I know there's a small community there. Uh, there's uh, you know, 5 to 10 really active users. There's another 20 to 30 that they know a little bit. And they start to think of themselves as a community. How do we grow? How do we get press coverage in our language? How do we get more volunteers? Uh, and so on. Uh, one of the things to think about here, though, is that Wikipedia is not evenly distributed around the world. The distribution of where Wikipedia is big or not big, um, in many ways, uh, you, could, you could predict it quite easily. Um, what are some of the factors? Well. Uh, degree of education um, is really important. Uh, access to broadband is very important. Um, there are various other cultural factors. Uh, but one of the things that's really interesting to look at, if you look at the top entries per capita, some of the top languages, and these are cherry-picked to make a point, some of the top languages per capita, so the number of entries versus the number of speakers of that language, would be Icelandic, Estonian, Norwegian, Swedish, Finnish. Um, so why is that? Uh, we don't really know for sure, but I have a theory. <laughs> it's really cold up there, and uh, they like to type a lot. Um, you know, the Italians tend to go out in the evenings for gelato, and uh, meanwhile, the Norwegians are typing away on the internet. Um, well, this is, this is just a joke, but it is true that we do see uh, some of the factors are, are hard to predict. But we do see that northern European countries are very, very strong uh, in Wikipedia. When we talk about the global nature of Wikipedia, one of the questions that people always have um, is the question of China. Uh, quite famously, China is, uh, has the most comprehensive uh, program of censorship uh, of the internet. And uh, we've actually had, uh, we have a long history in China. We were blocked 
uh, in China for, uh, for many years. Uh, then we were unblocked in China. Um, we were, for a very long time, we had a, a kind of a, a, an uneasy, uneasy equilibrium. So China had developed the capability and they were able to block individual pages from Wikipedia. So they unblocked almost all of Wikipedia, but they were filtering certain pages. And the pages that they were filtering, um, for the most part, were the obvious ones. So uh, anything having to do with uh, Tiananmen Square, um, the, the, the incidents there. Uh, Ai Weiwei, the artist, uh, who is very annoying to them. To them. Uh, <clears throat> Lu Xiaobo, who won the Nobel Peace Prize for his work on democracy uh, in China. These are the kinds of things that they, that they filtered out. Uh, but they let most of Wikipedia through. Well, um, this is an uneasy truce, but we made a commitment uh, that we would never uh, cooperate. We never have participated in censorship. We have never accepted censorship. We can't stop them from filtering their own network, um, but we've never made any agreement. There were overtures, and, and you know, they really wanted us to come into China. They offered that a university could, could host us and make sure that the content's all legal. Uh, but we said no to that because... Um, we believe that fundamentally uh, the right to an encyclopedia is a fundamental human right. It's, it's the equivalent of the right of freedom of expression. Uh, whatever uh, restrictions you might accept on speech in different societies, basic encyclopedic information, the facts of the world uh, shouldn't be a part of that. Well, uh, now, uh, due in no small part to the revelations of Ed Snowden about the NSA spying program, uh, in which there was one particular slide which we found very annoying that uh, sort of indicated that Wikipedia was quite an easy website to spy on because it wasn't encrypted. Um, we moved very, very quickly to encrypt the connections to Wikipedia. What has this meant? For, what this has meant for the freedom of expression um, worldwide is, is actually quite interesting. So when it's HTTPS, that means that anybody who's spying your connection they cannot see which page you're reading. They can see that you're talking to Wikipedia, but they don't know which page you're reading, which means that the policy option of filtering out specific pages is no longer available to governments worldwide. So what this means is they have to adopt an all-or-none approach. And I'm happy to report that almost every country in the world who used to filter Wikipedia now allows it through unfettered. It's too great a price to pay to ban all of Wikipedia just to block the pages of a few political activists domestically who you don't like. And so that has been a big win. Uh, this hasn't, unfortunately, worked in China. Uh, China is now completely blocking uh, Wikipedia. Um, we will continue to have a dialogue with them. Uh, I'm very much a believer of, of having conversations and, and trying to bring them along. Um, and we're very, very patient. We have no, uh, no plans to compromise. Uh, unfortunately, I think they also have no plans to compromise. So here we are in a bit of a deadlock. Um, but I, you know, I will say there, there was something uh, very interesting uh, that has happened uh, over the years. Um, just uh, we, we, were, we were blocked in China for several years, and then just before the uh, Beijing Olympics, <clears throat> uh, China experienced a period of more openness. They knew that millions of foreigners were coming from overseas, and they would be trying to use the internet. And so they unblocked a lot of websites um, that... Um, you know, that were, that were previously blocked. And somebody sent me this uh, very interesting image. It's a menu from a restaurant in Beijing. If you can see that, it says, Wikipedia fried with eggs. Got another one here, beef brisket in Wikipedia flavor. <laughs> Someone sent me this and they said, Jimmy, what does this mean? And I wrote back and I said, I have no idea. But I do know who uh, probably will know, uh, and I, so I sent an email to the Beijing area Wikipedians, and I said to them, what does this mean? And they conferred amongst themselves and wrote me back a couple of days later, and they said, Jimbo, that's what people call me online, Jimbo, we have no idea. <laughs> uh, the best that we can figure is that... Um, uh, because Wikipedia had just been opened up and because all the foreigners were coming from overseas, a lot of restaurants decided they needed to translate their menus. Uh, and so they were just going on Google to try and translate. And of course, anything you type into Google, like the name of a food, what's the first thing that comes up? Wikipedia. So, you know, they say, how do you say this in English? Uh, let me check. Uh, it must be Wikipedia. So there's a bunch of these. Stir-fried Wikipedia. I like it spicy myself. So anyway, so we, we have had a kind of a cultural impact in China, uh, even though we're currently uh, 
uh, blocked. Of course, we are a nonprofit, and we always do think a lot about sustainability for the long run. And I've decided that if things get really tough, we can open a restaurant chain in China. Um, I'm just go- just joking. Okay, so uh, one of the, the other things that people are always interested in when we, when we talk about the global nature of Wikipedia. So Wikipedia is in all these languages, and it's written, it's important to understand, it's not written in English and then translated into other languages. It's written organically in all these languages. Obviously, a lot of translation goes on, but I would say probably as much translation goes into English as out of English, um, as people write about their local culture, and then they decide to put it in English because that's the best way to spread it uh, worldwide. And what's interesting to think is, well, how does the content differ across different countries? So uh, we did this little study. It's a kind of preliminary small study where we looked at what are the most popular pages in Wikipedia. So this is not, um, this is not uh, what, what portion of the content, but this is what readers are interested in. Um, and if you take a look here, I don't know if this is a pointer or not. It might not be, but anyway. So the, the, the graphs here are for English, Chinese, Japanese, French, German, Russian, and Spanish. Um, and one of the first things that pops out at people is if you see the big green bar here for Japan says pop culture. If you know anything about Japan, uh, this actually makes sense. The Japanese do love pop culture. They love American pop culture, English pop culture, Japanese pop culture. It's a big part of life in Japan. It's a big part of the Japanese internet. And so for me, this sort of makes sense when I saw this. Um, Another one here uh, is interesting is that the, the Germans are the most interested in geography. Not sure that's a good thing. I, I, I don't make that joke when I'm in Germany. There's still a little sensitive about that sort of thing. Um, and then finally, you'll see that, that almost all of the languages, one of the top interests, everybody knows this, is uh, human sexuality. So sex, topics about sex is the topic that people are interested in. Um, except in, in France and Spain, uh, which puzzled me, but then someone explained it to me that in France and Spain, they're actually having sex. <laughs> And the rest of us are just reading about it on the internet. So, well, this is fun to, to joke about. And so, one of the interesting things about our community, we have a very diverse community, a lot of people from a lot of different cultures around the world. And people do like, in a playful and positive way, to play around with the stereotypes and things like this. But one of the great things about the Wikipedia community is that this is a group of people who are truly global in their outlook. Uh, people have made friends all around the world. Uh, They don't think of themselves as being inherently in in conflict with other cultures. Uh, They're learning about each other and so on and so forth. So one of the important questions uh, that we should all ask ourselves, because Wikipedia is now part of the infrastructure of the world, is who? Who writes Wikipedia? Who are the Wikipedians? So why do we want to know who the Wikipedians are? Well, here's a little quote from Twitter. This is from a a school librarian who said, yesterday I asked one of my students if she knew what an encyclopedia is, and she said, is it something like Wikipedia? <laughs> so if you think about uh, Wikipedia, so Wikipedia is now uh, 15 years old. Uh, so if Wikipedia has been around for 15, 15 and a half years now, uh, which means that uh, for kids who are entering university today, uh, Wikipedia has existed from the time that they were learning to read which means that the kids who are entering universities today are really the Wikipedia generation. Certainly in the last five years, which is the time when they were really old enough to start researching topics online, either for school or for their own personal interests, Wikipedia was huge and ubiquitous, and it's just part of the atmosphere for them. So for that generation, Wikipedia is really and truly part of the infrastructure of the world. It's something very, very familiar to them. And so we should really care Who writes Wikipedia? Like, we should all care about the quality of Wikipedia because it is so important to the world. So just a few things by the numbers. Um, Our community is about 87% male. Uh, We've looked at this number multiple times. Sometimes when we measure it, it's a little lower, a little higher. Uh, I think 87 is a plausible guess. I think it's actually maybe more like 80 these days, but still, it's not good. Uh, We know that the gender imbalance in Wikipedia uh, is something that probably um, has to change in order to address some of the problems we have in Wikipedia with the unbalanced content. People in Wikipedia tend to write about what they know. Uh, We've got an average age of 26. Uh, We have about double the percentage of PhDs compared to the general public. All of these things are basically fine, Except I think the the gender imbalance is a problem. One of the things that, uh, an example that we give to to illustrate the problem, uh, if you look at award-winning novelists, uh, so people who have won major literary prizes for their work, 
uh, and you look at the entries on the male novelists versus the female novelists, you'll see that the male novelists have much longer uh, entries, much more detailed. This is not, I know many, many, many Wikipedians, I can tell you, knowing them personally, this is not because the male Wikipedians go, eh, books by girls, who cares, right? That's not that type of sexism. Uh, what it is is that people write about what they're passionate about, what they're interested in, books they've read. And there is a truth that among great literature, there are books that are primarily aimed at a female audience, books primarily aimed at a male audience. And that readership directly translates into bias in Wikipedia when we don't have enough women participating. And so this is something that we really want to address. One of the things that... Um, you know, when you're using Wikipedia, you're, you're, you're typing and, uh, you're, you know, you're reading and reading. And, of course, Wikipedia is written in a very um, authoritative style, and it's somewhat impersonal. Uh, it's not like a message board where you really feel the personality of the person who wrote it uh, and things like that. And so for many people new to Wikipedia, it, it seems so institutional. It's hard to actually imagine the volunteers. So now I'm going to show you a bit of a short video um, of some volunteers uh, showing you, um, letting, letting them speak their own words um, about Wikipedia. If you have knowledge, why well, you must keep it by yourself? You must share it, I think. I liked that the purpose of this website didn't say website, didn't say wiki, didn't say internet. It just said free knowledge for everyone in their own language. When a community is open, it's really made of those who, who dare taking this invitation. And this is an invitation. Of course, you don't have to take an invitation, but it, there is an invitation out there in an edit button to say, come be part. What you know is as important as what we know. You know, you're giving education to people, and not just any people, but the whole of the world. So I feel great by contributing to an encyclopedia that is accessible to virtually everyone in the whole world. It's just making yourself happy by helping others, that's it. Because I want to be happy, I help others. You're working together with so many different people from so many different cultures and uh, it's just amazing. The thing about it for me, what it's really about, it's just really sweet people. Uh, you know, we've got all these really sweet people who are just they get online and they're typing and instead of yelling at each other or just having a conversation or reading about gossip or whatever, they're trying to build something that everybody else will find useful. I just think it's really sweet, really nice people. Right. <clears throat> so let's talk a little bit about the, the community, the real community. So one of the things uh, that, that I uh, complain about a lot in the internet world uh, is people talk about uh, online communities. but Oftentimes, they just mean the general public when they talk about the communities. Um, and in fact, this is really not the right way to understand Wikipedia. If your mental model of how Wikipedia works is 100 million people writing one sentence each, um, this is not correct. So in the introduction, I forget the number. So it said there was a total of 4 million, or I forgot the number you said. Uh, however many people. But this, this number is irrelevant, because what really matters um, is that there are 80,000 or so volunteers, uh, loosely defined, um, who, these are people, 80,000 is about the number of people who edit at least five times a month. A lot of people just make one edit, one, one edit a month, or one edit and they never come back and so on. Those people are important to the overall process, but they aren't really the community. The community is the group of people who really take care of Wikipedia, who really look after it. And that's really the three to 5,000 people who are really organized and passionate. These are the people who actually build Wikipedia. So the idea that you could just throw up a wiki and millions of people will come and it would magically turn into a encyclopedia sounds incredible and impossible. That's because it is incredible and impossible. What is possible, though, um, is organized small group collaboration, self-organized uh, for the most part. Um, and the key here is that these are people who know each other and they work together under a set of guiding principles. Now, obviously, we're talking about human beings, so I'm going to tell you a lot of good things about the community and how we work together, but we can't forget that we are talking about human beings. People get in fights and arguments, and uh, they make up, and you know, there's a lot of drama and noise underneath the surface. But there are several of these things uh, that we're going to talk about uh, which are really, uh, they're, they're bedrock, they're fundamentals that people turn to again and again to help resolve disputes. Before I go into all that, I just did want to talk a little bit, since we're here in the Hayek Auditorium, about the influence of Hayek on my thinking. So Hayek uh, has uh, one of his most famous essays was uh, The Use of Knowledge in Society, American Economic Review, 1945. If you haven't read it, you don't really need to be an economist to read it. 
Google it. It's actually available online. It's very accessible. And basically what he's talking about, he discusses the problem that we wish to solve when we try to construct a rational economic order. There is an analogy here to Wikipedia. It is only an analogy. So basically what Hayek said is that the, the problem we're facing, and by the way, this at that time was a really live intellectual dispute, the question of whether a centrally planned economy could outperform a market economy. And, and what he pointed out was that the key question there is, for a centrally planned economy, you need to pull in all the information, all the information that you need, and then you could, you know, the advance of economic science and mathematics, you could solve the system of simultaneous equation and determine the optimum uh, factors of production, and, and there you go. And he pointed out, well, but the, the problem is we can't gather all that information to the center, or it would be too expensive to gather all the information to the center. Uh, and given that, the distributing, so the question is, do we, do we bring all the information in and then make decisions in the center, or do we push decision-making out to the endpoints? So by analogy, this is, this is part of the concept of Wikipedia, that we could try in a very traditional way, like Britannica or something like that, to hire a group of experts and gather all the information of the world and synthesize it and put it out in that way. Um, and we would come up with something that might be fairly decent, but very small, very limited, um, and errors would be very hard to correct because we would have a small group of experts, and if they were wrong, they, they might not listen to other people and so on and so forth. Or the Wikipedia model is push all the decision-making out to the endpoints. We, we let people come in, take up whatever interest they have, uh, and they work on those entries. Uh, and oftentimes what we find is that the people who are experts, like expertise is very widely distributed in society, and it's not necessarily falling along professional lines. I'll just give an example um, completely randomly. Uh, like any other geeky person, I've, I've taken up a new interest, and I don't even know if I can explain why this came upon me, but I've become very interested in the history of aviation. So the history of airplanes and the early developments of jets. I don't know why. This isn't something I've ever been interested in before, but I've lately been reading a lot in Wikipedia about it. And it's astonishing to read. If you want to go and read in Wikipedia about the history of the DC-8 uh, passenger jet, um, it's incredible. Like this huge long entry including every variant of the DCA. They put out many different versions over the years. All of those are listed there. You couldn't pay anyone to write this stuff. Uh, it would cost a fortune. And also, you wouldn't necessarily find that that person who knows the most about it is sitting somewhere in a university and knows something that's so esoteric that no one else could possibly understand. In fact, what you find is there are airplane geeks and hobbyists who have found each other online. They discuss these things. They discuss and they debate and they work on this. And so by pushing the decision-making out to the endpoints, we don't have to sort of communicate all that information into the center and judge it. They work on it together. They, they discuss it, they debate it, and so on. And they do so, as I say, under this set of guiding principles, shared concepts. So one of the main concepts is that Wikipedia is an encyclopedia. What does this mean? This, there's a whole page in Wikipedia called what, what Wikipedia is Not, one of our policy pages. And what Wikipedia is not is it's not a history book. Uh, it's not a... Uh, library, uh, you know, for example, very, very early in the history of Wikipedia, someone uh, started uploading, they uploaded the full text of Hamlet, and we had a little discussion and debate to say, oh, does this belong here? And people were like, yes, well, it's, it's not under copyright, it's really important historically, but we said, mm, no, actually, the full text of Hamlet is not an encyclopedia article. Yes, that deserves to live somewhere online, we have a project now called Wikisource where that sort of thing lives, but in fact, our entry on Hamlet shouldn't be the full text of Hamlet. It should be the history, and you, you know in your mind exactly what, what the Wikipedia entry would look like for Hamlet. Uh, Wikipedia is not uh, YouTube. So as much as I love a funny cat video, they don't belong in Wikipedia. This idea of, a, of an encyclopedia is something that is really easy for, for everyone to share. If I say to you, encyclopedia entry about the Eiffel Tower, Everybody in this room knows more or less what that's going to look like. You're going to, oh, it'll tell the history. When was it built? Why was it built? Who was the architect? What was the cultural impact? There should be some pictures there. We pretty much know. We can fight about the details forever, and believe me, the Wikipedians will. But we all know what we're driving at for that. Um, Wikipedia is not a travel guide, so our entry on, on the, the Eiffel Tower won't tell you, here's the five best restaurants nearby. Here's this and that. We have a wiki voyage, which is a travel site around that sort of thing. So the idea that it's an encyclopedia has been really important at gathering the community together, allowing people to understand what we're trying to accomplish together. Another core value, basic principle, is uh, NPOV, uh, neutral point of view. So the idea here is that on any controversial topic, Wikipedia itself should not take a stand on that topic, 
which should describe all of the major sides in a fair way. The idea here is that it's, it's both, a, a, I would say, a social idea and an epistemological idea. So the social idea is this is really the only way to get people to work together. If we're going to have a controversial issue, let's say, for example, um, abortion. So you can imagine a very kind and thoughtful Catholic priest and a very kind and thoughtful Planned Parenthood activist. And as long as they both understand that Wikipedia is not going to tell you whether or not abortion is good or bad, but is going to describe it. So the, the priest will understand that Wikipedia can't sort of lead off saying abortion is a sin, but it can say uh, Catholic Church position on abortion is such and such, and the Pope has said this, and critics have responded that. And so then epistemologically, what's great about that is this is what I want from an encyclopedia. I don't want to come to an encyclopedia and hear only one side of the story. If I only want one side of the story, I can flick on whatever your favorite news channel is on TV. They're very good at telling you only one side of the story. But if I want an encyclopedia, I actually want to hear, I want to hear uh, an argument that I might agree with, and I want to hear the argument I might disagree with. I want to understand why people are saying the different things. And when this works well, that Catholic priest and that Planned Parenthood activist, and remember I specified that they're kind and thoughtful because that's very important, they can both point to the entry with pride and they can say, look, if you read this, you will understand the debate. Um, and that's really, really important. And that is really one of the most fundamental goals of Wikipedia is not to persuade people of any particular point of view, but to persuade them that learning and knowledge about the world is the best way to come to a particular point of view. Uh, another core principle is free licensing. So everything in Wikipedia is free. Uh, we want it to be um, freely redistributable. So uh, the free licensing model means that you can copy, modify, redistribute, redistribute modified versions. You can do all of that commercially or non-commercially. So people can take the content from Wikipedia and repurpose it and do whatever they want with it. And, and we're really happy when they do that. But what does this mean? In order to make it legally possible to do that, we have to respect the law. So we respect copyright. Uh, we don't allow copyright uh, violations, but it's actually a little bit broader than that. Um, you, can, you can plagiarize something without technically violating copyright, but we really don't want to plagiarize things. It's really important for us, sort of as an ethical thought within our community, to say, look, whatever problems there are with Wikipedia, we can say with some pride, we made that. We, we wrote it ourselves. We, we cited our sources, and this is really important from an ethical point of view for us. Um, and you know, the community is very passionate about this. We, people, uh, you know, if you think about the kinds of legal problems that we might have, actually dealing with copyright infringement is very, very minimal for us because the community polices it. Very seldom does a copyright complaint even rise to the level of the legal department simply because the community quite aggressively looks out for that sort of thing uh, in the first place. Another core value is civility. Uh, one of the earliest uh, rules of Wikipedia is no personal attacks. And we all know... Uh, if you go online to any kind of discussion of anything, it can very quickly descend into just vicious personal attacks, uh, attacks on you as a person rather than sticking to the ideas. This is very much against the Wikipedia ethos. I will not pretend to you that it never happens. Of course, we're human beings. People get upset. They yell at other people. They insult people. But there is that fundamental vibe in the community that that's wrong, that if you've done that, you should apologize. If you won't apologize, maybe you should be banned. And we do ban people um, who can't behave in a proper manner. It's not a perfect system, but it actually works pretty well. And, and it does help to attract a really good group of people, very kind and thoughtful people, who really care a lot about getting it right. It's also one of the areas where newcomers to the community actually can have a hard time, because they come from other environments where the way to get something done in, in an internet community is just yell at people, um, insult people. That's normal behavior in some parts of the internet. You come to Wikipedia and it's like, hey, whoa, like you, you immediately start off, you know, you're going to edit the entry on, um, uh, I don't know, Hillary Clinton. And you immediately come in and you start going, oh, you leftists and da, da, da. And it's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. We're writing an encyclopedia. Just relax a little bit. Uh, do you have sources? Is there biased language in Wikipedia? Let's try and improve the entry together. And finally, one of the strangest rules of Wikipedia is um, IAR, which means ignore all rules. And this, again, has two kind of, uh, two kind of meanings to it. Um, one, one is, uh, you know, it's, it's basically uh, we want to be able to question our own rules. Are the rules actually valid? Are they helpful? Um, and so that we, we want people to say, look, if you see a way to improve the encyclopedia that's against some alleged rule, go ahead and do it. But boy, you really better be sure that you're improving the encyclopedia. You can justify it. It's not an easy thing to ignore all the rules. But it also has the, the other meaning, which is that the rules themselves should be written in such a fashion that they should be 
almost intuitively obvious for people. Like things like don't go around calling people Hitler is uh, obviously a good idea. As we have Mike Gobman here in the front row, he can attest. Uh, and uh, this is this is you know this is some basic kindergarten ethics. So most of the rules of Wikipedia should be kindergarten ethics. Don't lie about who you are. Don't write incredibly biased things. Don't misrepresent sources. These are all very basic things, and most of the rules have to do with that. If there's a rule about the exact formatting of a footnote, then ideally, if you don't do it right, no one should yell at you. They should come and fix the footnote, and they should give you a pointer and say, oh, right, I fixed your footnote. Here's the style guide for how we normally do footnotes. Maybe you'll find it useful, right? That kind of nice behavior. So we shouldn't be like completely obsessively rule-bound. Truth is, we've been doing this for a long time, and I think this is one of our failings as a community that we are very experienced at writing an encyclopedia, and newcomers sometimes aren't, and then they feel a little bit off-put as the community corrects their work and so on and so forth. We try to be nice, but, you know, we're human beings. Um, and so finally, I just wanted to speak for just a moment about our business model. Uh, the Wikimedia Foundation uh, is a charity. So we're a 501c3 nonprofit. Uh, we're running the fifth most popular website in the world, which is an astonishing uh, fact. Um, and it's, it's very unusual. We have about, uh, I don't know the current numbers, 250, 270 employees, uh, mostly in San Francisco. Uh, we have local chapters around the world, so local nonprofit organizations who help organize local work and deal with the press locally and things like that. But it's a really unusual model and importantly, uh, our funding is almost, I mean, the, the vast majority of the funding, more than 90% of our funding is from the small donors. So people who are giving, uh, the bulk of the money comes from people who are giving 50 to $100. You'll occasionally see the banner up saying, hey, could you please give to Wikipedia? Um, and it's really important that you do so. Uh, as it turns out, uh, the, the last numbers I crunched on this, it costs about one penny, one US penny per month per reader to provide Wikipedia. So if you give $20 to Wikipedia, then the next 2,000 people you see, you can say, hey, I paid your Wikipedia bill this month. Um, and I hope you do that and tell your friends they should donate as well because it is really important. Uh, we, we, uh, we take fundraising seriously, but we've been, we've been reasonably successful. We run the organization in a very financially conservative way. Uh, we try to build up a, the, the amount of reserves that are recommended for a nonprofit of our size and so on and so forth. Um, but it's something that we do have to take seriously. It's not easy to get all the money that we need. And obviously, every organization in theory could use more money to do more good works. Uh, but we're doing okay, and it is very important that people do donate. Finally, I just want to talk a little bit about um, laws and our, our position in, in the world. Um, bad laws can really damage um, our work. The way that the internet works uh, is, is not an automatic. Uh, there's a certain set of legal frameworks, a certain set of things that are really necessary uh, to preserve the ability for websites like Wikipedia to exist. And far too often, lawmakers think of internet law as being primarily about adjudicating conflict between Silicon Valley and Hollywood. That's one of the main things. Uh, there was this big um, uh, issue, uh, which I'll talk about in a minute, uh, the SOPA-PIPA bill, which was going to be incredibly, extraordinarily bad. Um, and we fought that and we won. Um, or there, there's a simple trade-off between freedom and security. Um, you get this a lot. I live in the UK now um, where the knee-jerk response to any kind of security problem is to um, lock down and spy on the internet and, and sort of treat everybody in the UK as a potential criminal. Uh, and, and these are not very clever ways of doing it. Um, what we ask lawmakers is to please consult with us before backing stupid laws. Uh, far too often, lawmakers proposed laws, and it's fairly clear that they do not even have the most rudimentary understanding of how the internet works, uh, and that's a bad thing. The, the Sopo Pipa thing, we're really quite proud of. It, it's very rare for us to speak on political issues. I do personally sometimes, even I try to limit what I say politically uh, to issues where I feel like my community will, will generally agree with me, but I always try to divide my personal views from, from what we're doing as the, at the foundation. But on this issue, uh, the SOPA people law was going to allow and actually require the building of a censorship framework technologically not dissimilar to what China does. It was all about blocking overseas websites that had copyrighted content uh, without a hearing and so on. It was a very bad, uh, very poorly thought out legislation. Uh, and we were told, uh, kind of at the last minute, that this was being rushed through, that this they had bipartisan support, it was going to make it through. There were a couple of great... Uh, people in Congress who delayed it and stalled it through Christmas, which gave us enough time 
to talk. Our community discussed what to do, and we decided to do a protest. And so in January of that year, which year was that? 2011, January 2011, so it's been a while. It's about time we do something again. Uh, January 2011, we uh, decided to go black for one day. So uh, the English Wikipedia went completely black, not just in the U.S. I thought we should just geolocate to the U.S. It started, it started in 2011. It was actually the turn of the year 2012. Early 2012 was the blackout. January 2012. Right. So through the fall of 2011, we were discussing. And so Anyway, on that day... When Wikipedia went black, you can imagine the results. Uh, people went crazy. Um, we, we heard that um, 10 million people contacted Congress that day. Um, we heard that the House of Representatives phone system crashed. Um, it was kind of a big deal. Uh, and it, what, what we felt was important about our role in that was that we really put forward the message Look, we're non-commercial. We're a group of volunteers trying to provide the world with a gift. This is not about, is it Google versus Hollywood and that sort of thing. That is not the only issue. Copyright, many years ago, you could just think of it as an industrial regulation. It didn't directly impact most people. Um, you know, publishers, uh, authors of books, uh, sort of their relations with each other. Now, everybody deals with copyright all the time. Uh, one of my favorite kind of examples to get people to step back and really think about copyright is if you take a, a video at a, at a kid's birthday party and in the background there's a, a Miley Cyrus song playing and then you upload it to YouTube uh, and send the link to grandma so that grandma can look at the kid's birthday party, a normal use of sort of copyrighted content that happens to be on the radio, it's very likely that Google will automatically detect it and silence the soundtrack. I'm not blaming Google. They, they have to do what they have to do. But this is strange. Like, this is not what we really think of as piracy or sort of economically impactful. And so I do think it's time to really revisit some of these issues. Another issue we've been really active on in Europe uh, is what's uh, known as the so-called right to be forgotten, um, which is a very amusingly named thing because obviously existentially this is not possible to have a right for other people to forget you. Like, you can't really control what's in other people's minds, but this isn't really what it means. Uh, what I say is it should be called the right to censor Google. Uh, so the right to be forgotten is this concept in Europe that uh, for certain types of content, and I'm not talking about libel, I'm not talking about child porn, I'm not talking about any of the kinds of edge cases that we might really ponder about, it's things that are deemed by normally the, the person it's about to be irrelevant, out of date, and so on. And the, real, the bigger problem with it is not just that it's a violation of freedom of expression, which it certainly is, but the bigger problem is that the way it's implemented uh, is through legal decision from a law that existed before Google. It's about database um, sort of information rights, uh, right to information about you, which people, when the law was written, they were clearly thinking about things like your personal medical records. And sort of to say, look, if a company has your personal medical records, maybe you should have a right to ask them to delete that and they should have to do that. Okay, interesting question. I don't have a strong view on that, but I know that's very different from this newspaper wrote an article about me 10 years ago and I don't want people to read it anymore. That's a very different story. So the problem that we have now is that if you want to get something deleted, there isn't really a well-formed legal process. I say if you're going to require Google to delete a link to a newspaper archive, you damn well better get a judge involved. That's like the, the lowest possible bar to what you should be doing, that doesn't happen. Uh, if Google doesn't do it, they can be subject to fines. And as a publisher, like Wikipedia, if Google is deleting links to Wikipedia entries, which they are, we don't really have a clear course of action. We can complain to Google, but there's not a really obvious uh, way for publishers to deal with this. So the whole thing needs to be revisited. So this is the kind of political activism that we do. Uh, it's quite easy to uh, get the public excited by turning Wikipedia off for a day, that's a very powerful tool, but it's one we don't want to use too often. Uh, you know, we don't want to be sort of like, oh, yeah, Wikipedia's off. I wonder what they're moaning about today. They're, you know, on strike half the time. Uh, but it is a tool that I think we should be willing to use uh, when, when the moment is right and when we can have a positive change. So I'm just going to conclude now, and then we've got a little bit of time for questions. I've run over a little bit, but uh, I'm just going to talk about the forces of anger and hate because I think uh, right now we're in this uh, incredibly... Uh, highly intellectual and clever um, in election cycle. 
where issues of substance are debated. No, of course not. Uh, the world today is filled with voices of anger and hate. Uh, the media is a really a disappointing circus. And I think that Wikipedia is, and should be, as much as human beings can make it, a place for reasoned discourse, a place to understand first, to prepare oneself to make valid judgments about the world. You don't come to Wikipedia to, for us to tell you what to think. You come to Wikipedia to get the information you need to make up your own mind. So contrast the world I was telling you about earlier, the world of the Wikipedia editors and the discussions and the debates to... Uh, this is not our world. Uh, so Wikipedia is about building bridges, not walls. Uh, I think that Wikipedia is a force for knowledge, and knowledge is a force for peace and understanding. So thank you very much for your time. So we have time for questions, um, possibly four minutes. Please wait to be called on. Okay. Wait for the microphone so everyone in the room and our audience watching online can hear the question. And please announce your name and affiliation. I didn't know they had him doing so that job. I think it's we're going to be waiting for the microphones. But um, ah, well, can you just? Uh, oh, right, yeah. It's good. Herb Rose, uh, how do you decide about disagreements as to certain entries in Wikipedia? So, you know, disagreements are normally uh, they're resolved through a process of dialogue and debate. Um, and very often, one of the great things about text is that there's very often a way, if you keep rewriting, keep rewriting, to accommodate both points of view. So I give this example um, of, you know, uh, of abortion, but let's take another example. So something has happened in Israel. Uh, and one group of people are saying, it's a massacre. The other people are saying, no, it was a defensive operation, whatever it might be. Well, Wikipedia can't decide that. There are going to be competing sources, competing perspectives on it. But what Wikipedia can do is what I call go meta, step away from it a little bit and say, well, uh, at this particular time, um, Ariel Sharon uh, said this, and um, uh, Yasser Arafat responded in this way. Uh, other commentators said this and that. This was the result of a tribunal that was held later. We can basically give you all the facts of what different people's perspectives were, and then you can judge based on the best evidence available what you think about it. And that works in most cases, that people are able to say, actually, this is what an encyclopedia should do. The encyclopedia should not come to the final conclusion. Other mechanisms that we use is that there is a, a real passion for reliable sources. Uh, we, we look for high-quality sources. And this is a very, um, I would say, we have a fairly sophisticated view of what constitutes a high-quality source. So it's not so simplistic as saying, oh, we'll accept the New York Times, but we won't accept the Daily Mail, uh, even though those are clearly of different quality. We'll say, actually, Daily Mail is not that great of a source most of the time, but they sometimes do breaking news, journalism, important things that should be credited to them, and so on. The question of a blog, should we treat how should we treat a blog? Well, it depends. In many cases, blogs would not be considered a reliable source. It's just one person's view. But as an example of where a blog can be a reliable source is if a politician writes about their own view of something in their own blog, that's actually a good source for what their own view is. Um, and so there's a lot of those kind of subtleties. And, and, and frankly, there's no magic bullet. There's no algorithm. There's no simple answer to some of these things other than chewing on it discussing, debating, and really working hard to try to reach some kind of a consensus. Okay, next. I think David. This is one of my intellectual mentors from back in the day, David <laughs> Kelly. Hi, Jimmy. It's good to see you. And um, first, let me say, I, I, what you've accomplished is just staggering, awesome. Um, so my congratulations to you. Um, and having said that, what I, my question is a little bit um, ironic because I want to pick up on your allusion to Hayek and the you know distributed nature of the knowledge. But I, I want to push that. You said that was, or your slide suggested that was only an analogy. I want to say there's something I th think a little more literal about it in that uh, it seems to me that the Wikipedia achieves a degree of objectivity and accuracy that could aptly be described as a result of human action, but not of human design, in the sense that it emerges from the spontaneous order of people interacting in the way you've described. I mean, granted, there is your design, and it, but the, even the rules are 
evolving. So I'd just be interested in your, your take on that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, that's, I think that's certainly true. I mean, certainly, um, when you've got people of, of good faith working together who may be of very different ideological perspectives, uh, the important thing is when I specify that they're, they're kind and thoughtful, uh, because kind and thoughtful people who I disagree with um, are much better to work with than a raging ideologue who won't listen to anybody who I actually agree with. Like, that's a very annoying person to try to edit with. So uh, there is that. And, and so what comes out of Wikipedia is, is not necessarily um, uh, something that you would get from a smaller group of people. That the ability for anything to be challenged at any time uh, means a few things. It means, well, it can be challenged if it's wrong, but it also means that as people are writing, they're thinking in their minds, I need to make sure that I cover possible objections. Um, and that's, that's a big piece of it. Um, I have a friend of a very different philosophical perspective from your own who says that all knowledge is just convention. It's like human convention. So for him, Wikipedia is true because it's conventional. And I say, okay, well, I don't agree. <laughs> I actually think it reality exists, but there is something really important about convention, about dialogue, about uh, working to knock off the rough edges uh, by acknowledging different perspectives. Um, I want to be fair here. I don't know, fair to sides of the room, but I'm also always looking for women to speak up because it's true all the way down to about five years old, the boys always raise their hands first. And uh, so I always try to be a little more balanced. Yeah? Uh, hi, David Calvat. Um, as Wikipedia's presence in what I might call the apparatus of civilization's knowledge base rises, it seems to me that from the standpoint of all kinds of political actors, the stakes rise for a lot of holders to influence the content. And so in particular, have you noticed, and I'm just making this up, but I'm, it's easy to, to imagine this kind of thing happening. If you think about, for instance, the kinds of res the scale of resources that are available to typical nation state actors, um, the Chinese might say tomorrow, you know, let's, let's uh, hire 10,000 people mm. to just have them submit right. revisions to Wikipedia, yeah. write up new pages and so on. And of course, if you've got this hearty band of sort of three to 5,000 people trying to cover all knowledge, and then you've got sort of 10,000 Chinese going after stuff they care about, and maybe the Iranians mm. wake up two days later and say, yeah, we'll do that too. <laughs> um, right. so are I, you seeing any evidence this. of this? And if so, how do you... Uh, what yeah. kind of effort do you imagine yourself okay. being able so, to make to deal with yeah, it? Yeah, so I see, I see the question. So, um, so here's what I think about this. So we've not seen any large-scale efforts, sort of state-level efforts, to flood Wikipedia with hundreds of editors. That's not something we've seen. It's something that we worry about in the abstract, but it's not something that we've actually seen. And uh, I think I had a conversation once that I think will help illustrate... Uh, the problem. So uh, actually two conversations. These both happen to involve Russia, but it could be other places. I was in uh, Russia and I was having dinner with the editor of a magazine, popular magazine, not, not a political magazine. Um, and he was very skeptical about Wikipedia. He's like, oh, if I want to change something in Wikipedia, why don't I just go pay 10 of your editors, you know, $100 each and I'll just make Wikipedia say what I want it to make. And I said, well, look, think about it. Like, you would have to do that, and you would have to trust that none of those 10 editors would leak or announce this quite extraordinary fact that the editor-in-chief of a magazine was bribing people to edit Wikipedia. That's a great news story. People would be quite happy to expose you. And furthermore, um, you're editor-in-chief of a magazine. It's much easier for you to do that. Like, if I want to change, if I'm Putin and I want to change what's in the press, it's much easier for me to control you than it is to control hundreds of Wikipedia volunteers. So we move to the next question. Uh, somebody said recently, uh, okay, well, right now there's this uh, conflict between Ukraine and Russia over the Crimea. Uh, and somebody said to me, actually, Russian Wikipedia uh, is very different from Ukrainian Wikipedia and indeed from English Wikipedia on certain aspects of this conflict. So the question of the plane that was shot down, what are the facts there? Russian Wikipedia tended to be 
a bit one-sided from the Russian perspective, which I regard as a real, an actual problem. And somebody was saying quite alarmingly, it's obvious the Russians have agents controlling the Wikipedia. And so I said, mm, okay, well, let me ask. So actually, we have a board member, Ukrainian board member who speaks Russian. Uh, she's a great Wikipedian. I know great Wikipedians there. And I just sort of asked her, like, what, what's going on here? And basically what they said is, yeah, we're aware of the problem. But the problem is not that the Russian Wikipedians are controlled by the government, it's that the government controls all the sources in Russian language. And therefore, it's harder for people to reach uh, neutrality when they, when they go to newspapers that they normally regard as perfectly legitimate, reliable sources because, frankly, they have quality newspapers in Russia that are quite good on many topics, unless it's a particular topic, in which case they, they toe the line. And so that is a problem. It's a real problem when all the sources in a language say one thing. Obviously, people speak other languages. And so they, this is no longer a world where people can truly control information. But for a period of time, uh, you can uh, have some impact and influence. We see this more often on much more minor things. So there'll be minor disputes uh, between different countries uh, about different things. I, I, I spoke to a, a parliament member in Lithuania once who talked about, he was a historian, um, he talked about the, there's a famous battle between Lithuania and Poland. And he could read English, German, Lithuanian, and Polish. And he printed out before he met me all the articles about this battle and read them all. And he said, I'm just trying to understand this. He said, basically what I see is that, that well, the, the Lithuanian version tells the Lithuanian version of the story. The Poles are telling the Polish version of the story. The Germans, it's a smaller, like they don't even cover it, like, it's not, it's not big there. Uh, and he's like, English actually tells both sides of the story and actually explains why there's a historical conflict about the sources and what different people believe. And I said, it doesn't surprise me because Lithuanians grew up believing. Like, if I ask uh, people who were born in the US or any English-speaking country, who invented the airplane, like, that's a simplest, like, second-grade answer. The Wright brothers invented the airplane. We all know that. Apparently, if you ask French people the same question, you get a very different answer. <laughs> And it's not because there's any genuine sort of vehement nationalist conflict between the Americans and the French over who invented the airplane. It's just people know things that they grew up with and they, their environment. If you go to Wikipedia, so somebody called this out as saying, oh, French Wikipedia and, and English Wikipedia are very different. Now if you go to the English Wikipedia and you read the history of aeronautics, you actually you learn about it was a Brazilian guy who was in France and so on, you know, that. And, you know, most of us has this view like, I, I, I had this kind of cartoon view of how the airplane was invented. It's like there were a bunch of people with crazy flapping wing things from old newsreels, and then the Wright brothers geniusly invented the airplane. Um, as I understand it now, this is really off topic, but what the Wright brothers did is they invented the first plane. It went further than it would have were it a glider, but it didn't actually go up, which is kind of important for an airplane, and, and the Brazilian guy was the first one who actually also went up. So there's a legitimate uh, claim to priority uh, on this. But uh, so anyway, this is the kind of thing that hopefully, by having an open system, having an open dialogue where people from different cultures can come in and challenge and say, all right, well, in second grade, I was taught uh, that the Wright brothers invented the airplane. Oh, really? Well, let's talk about that. And now we can sort of begin to learn more together. And a lot of the Wikipedia volunteers are very passionate about that kind of activity, like learning new things that are surprising in some way. Oh. Here, back here, in the red jacket. Hi, my name is Cindy Crawford. Um, this is sort of related to the last question, but more from a commercial perspective. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you find that if there's a new movie coming out or a new product coming out, if you're offered page entries so that there's an entry up before the actual offering is available to the public. Um, so we discourage that sort of thing. Um, we, we would say <coughs> it's a very tricky thing. So when people try to use Wikipedia for marketing purposes, it can backfire quite badly. Um, people write you know, basically a press release and try to publish it on Wikipedia, and, and the Wikipedians go, this product isn't even out yet. Uh, there's no news articles about it. They're just going to delete it. Um, and also, we think... Wikipedia is an encyclopedia, not an advertising directory. So we really, really discourage it. So we, there are a set of guidelines for people because obviously commercial entities, just like any other organization, just like any other person, have a right to engage in the public dialogue. But we say to them, look, there are right ways and wrong ways of going about it. And, and the most important thing 
uh, to do is to engage with the community in an honest fashion. Sort of say, I'm with this company, and you know, ideally you will say, there's an error, uh, and we have sources to third-party news coverage that show the error. Uh, that's important. Uh, a lot of times celebrities, I, I've met celebrities who, like quite controversial people who said to me, oh, my Wikipedia article's terrible. And I'm like, okay, all right, let's just see what this is all about. And I often think it's going to be sort of these 18 outrageous, obnoxious things they did or said in their lives. Uh, turns out it's not that. It's some minor factual detail of their life that really bothers them <laughs> that we've got it wrong. And they've got a source. And I'm like, okay, well, we can fix that. So um, basically, if you have a conflict of interest, uh, the best thing to do is never edit the page directly. That's best practice. But to engage with the community, just as, you know, what would you do if there's an error about you in the New York Times? You don't sort of try to change the New York Times. Uh, you, you call them up or you, you email the, the author and you say, hey, wow, you got this wrong. Can you correct it? And uh, obviously, <laughs> some organizations are more responsive than others. We are very responsive or we try to be very responsive if there's an error. And I always say to people, if you've had that experience and it didn't work, keep escalating it. Email me personally because we're very passionate about getting it right. So, Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. Great. Jimmy, thank you for an outstanding presentation. I especially like the part about um, asking legislators to consult with you before they pass any stupid laws. That's something that we definitely can relate to um, here at Cato. We also encourage them to get rid of some of the stupid laws we've already got as well, which is the other side of the equation. But thanks for a great presentation. I mean, you've won so many accolades, being named you know, one of the Times' uh, 100 Most Influential People. And I think in 2007, the World Economic Forum named you one of the uh, young global leaders, which is particularly impressive to we old local followers. Um, and uh, it's, we really uh, thank you so much for uh, not just this presentation, but for Wikipedia. Um, it's so uh, uh, indispensable to, to many of us who rely on it. So thank you for that. And thank you again to, uh, to Gene for your generosity in uh, making this evening possible. Thanks, everyone, for being here. And uh, have a great evening. <laughs>